into the reality that the apostolic writing gives insight and understanding to the whole of the revelation of God, and that we might learn to read the Old Testament in light of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Why is it important? Because I don't care how careful we are or how long we've been understanding the truth in a, in a precise way or how deep our vocabulary might be, beloved, we all, have a, we all have a vein or a stream of error in us when it comes to how to understand and interpret Scripture. And unfortunately, we like to look to the experts. We like to look to the people who have been taught the science of it, the hermeneutic. We like to look at people who are exegetes, which is not a problem because that's what we're doing. But they are, they are professionals rather than personal <laughs> invest with a person, with, instead of having personal investment in the word. And it goes on and on and on. And so a lot of times, you know, I was thinking about this morning when I would be called at a last minute to preach in other churches sometimes, other congregations. And they'd say, hey, you know, Pastor Tippins, we need somebody to preach tomorrow morning. We know your church service doesn't start at till 2. Would you mind coming and filling our pulpit? And the answer is always yes. I don't care what church it was. I don't care what denomination it was or, you know, what, what ministry it was. I would always teach. And, you know, I've got a handful of texts that I can go to at any given time and just teach because I've taught them and taught them and taught them. But I'll tell you this, there are some times, even though I may have taught these texts for years, that the Lord will just slap me. And say, why do you keep saying that? That's not what I'm saying here. Well, that's what he says. That's what they say. That's what the commentary says. God says, I don't care what the commentary says. God doesn't care what history says. God doesn't care what I said yesterday. God cares and is concerned with what he is saying today. It doesn't change. And so we are always in the place of adding to the word of God if we're not careful. We're always in the place of taking away from the word of God. And I'm not, I'm not talking about in a malicious way or intentional way, but just in a human way. We are that way. Oh, I need to clean this room. Well... I'll just sweep the floor. That's not cleaning the room. That's cleaning the floor. I'm going to dust the house. Ah, maybe not. I'll just dust the TV. You didn't dust the mini blinds. Go check them. So we, we often, just because of our nature, just because of the life that we live, we're often in a place of omission. We're often in a place of, of dealing with the Bible in a way that's not the way God intended for it to be dealt with. And so that's why I think it's important for us to read and within the context of what we read to just listen, to listen. A lot of people think that sermon preparation is a bunch of books on the floor and a bunch of books on the desk and a bunch of books in the, uh, printed out and a bunch of stuff. And that's not sermon preparation. That is technical writing and outline preparation. That's taking all sorts of other sources. That's called Ph.D. work. That's research. That's taking all the other sources and putting them down and then organizing them in such a way that they can be expressed to a larger or different or new audience. That's not exposition. It's not exposition. Exposition is to see the text, and the text says what it says, and the text expounds, and it doesn't require 
It doesn't require a high level of cognitive function in order for the Word of God to be taught and preached. It doesn't require intelligence. It doesn't require expertise. It doesn't require a deep, deep handling of spiritual things. It requires God the Holy Spirit in the simplistic way, teaching through the written Word. But what it does require is the discipline of the Word. So sermon preparation is 90% thinking and listening. And 5% chaos. And 5%, I can't believe I pulled that off. But it's 100% the Lord. It's 100% the Spirit. Who am I that I am qualified to stand here to teach this scripture? Except that God has decided to create me for the purpose of expounding and expressing that which he has already written for the joy of his peoples. For the revelation of his own face to his, to his elect. That's all that this is. This is not me doing what I do best. This is me doing what God has created me to do. Being as the deer. Or as the wind, or as the rain, or as the dirt, or as the sparrow is created to do what it does, so is the elder and the overseer. So is each of us, individually and collectively, as the body of Christ. And then as this small little tiny picture known as grace, truth, the assembly. We are doing that which God has ordained for us to do. And he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. Last week, I spoke in a specific way of dealing with the goodness of God, part two, and the week before, the goodness of God, and that it is the centerpiece, if we can say, according to Genesis 1, of everything that God is. Therefore, that everything God makes is good because He made it. No matter the purpose. Why is there gnats? Gnats are good. So we say, no, they're not. They're part of the fall. No, they weren't. They're pestilence because of the fall. And that's God's intention. He created gnats. He created spiders. I hate spiders, but I hate gnats worse. So spiders eat gnats. And we don't have to find all the good and the bad. Snakes aren't evil. Dogs aren't evil. Cats aren't evil. They're great. They're good. But even evil is created by God for the day of his purposes, for the day of despair. Why? As we saw last week in our closing, because God does what he wants to do. And he does so for his own purpose and for his own glory. And in being patient with vessels of destruction, things created for what we would call bad He reveals the amazing work of creation in redemption for his own namesake. And we see it. Not because we're smart. We see it because we're his. And when God created the world and everything in it, it is the outline of the entire revelation of God. It is the purpose of the Bible. To show that God is the only one that can do that which is done. And God is the only one that can create. 
And God is the only one that can put into order chaotic things. Now, the question came up a couple of weeks ago about why do I refer to the creation beginnings as chaotic? Because that's what they are. Out of nothing came things. And then the order, it's by necessity. We see it there. Until God separated these things, they were not in order. The absence of order is chaos. So we look at if God were not creating and then God in the creation ordering in his divine power and putting into its right place for his purposes, we would have chaos. And the cosmos is not chaos. The cosmos is extreme order. Your body, even when it's sick, is in extreme order. It's fighting a virus is absolutely orderly. And it's not chaos. And so God's creation of the world as shown to us through that oral transmission for generations, then Moses wrote it down because God told him to write it down. You've got to understand, this is the first time in history when Moses wrote that the Jewish people were told to write down these things. Before that, they memorized these things. They spent their time not binging on a movie, not reading poetry, not, well, I guess they did in the Psalms and all, but, I mean, you know, not dealing with all. They spent their time hearing the truth of who God is. And they had to go to work. There was always a lesson to be learned about who God is. When they were sitting down for meals, there was always a lesson to be learned about who God is. When there was a story to be told at bedtime, there was a lesson to be learned about who God is. And now we have it written down for our understanding. And then there's a lot of things that are misunderstood. And I'm, I'm, I'm priming this for the purpose of helping all of us, myself included, as I stand here and speak openly out of my brain, that if we're not careful, we will shut out that which God is revealing because we love so much that which we have always understood. But God is kind and gracious to us. And he's, he's patient with us and he teaches us and he tenderly corrects us in discipline because he loves us in Christ. And when we look at verse chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Well, I'll read all the way through the end of chapter 1 again from verse 26 on. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God approved of them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and dominion over the birds of the heavens and Dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, verse 29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
And it was so because God said it and then he did it. And God saw everything that he had made and he looked and it was very good. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. And then we understand the Sabbath because we talked about that about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Beloved, there's some things that I want to pull out of this text real quick before we get into the point of today's message. The point of today's message is to understand the image of God. And there are, you talk about books. Oh my, are there books on this subject. There are probably more books than I could put in this building on this subject. More writings on the image of God or the imago dei, as we like to often say, and the likeness of God. There are so many theories and propositions and ideologies and philosophies and theological things that have come to just be accepted. But yet, God has not changed His message from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 1, verse 31. He's not changed what he's talking about. And he's not going to change what he's talking about in chapter 2 verse 1 to the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3 he's not talking, he's not changing the subject. God is not changing the subject. The subject of Genesis 1 and the creation of the world and the creation of man and the fall of man and the promise of Messiah. And then Cain and Abel and so on and so forth. The purpose of this is to reveal God as the one who puts order and goodness in all that he intended to create in that way. And he alone can do it for the sake of his own glory. And this is to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many volumes also dealing, and we'll talk about works here in a couple of weeks. And the covenant of works, if you will, and the promise of work. What is the promise of work? It shall yield... A small portion in time, but ultimately it shall end in death. And I'm just giving you a heads up. You're going to have to change the way you think, and you're just going to have to listen. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of the Lord as truth. Why is it important? Because, beloved, I think so many times the, the biggest way in which the elect are deceived is that Scripture is twisted unintentionally by well-meaning intelligence. That comes to the table and goes, look what I found out here in the world. Now I can make the Bible fit it. Or look what I've been thinking. Look at how we've been, <coughs> you know, in our Renaissance minds. Coming up with all these different ideas. Now I can make the Bible work for this. So we try to make God work for our understanding. And out of that comes a different God, a different revelation, a different gospel, a different Christ, a different church, a different purpose, a different meaning. Like some people would say that God created the world and everything in it in order that man would share in his glory in their earthly rule as he rules all things. Sort of like a co-regent type thing. Some people say that. Some people say there's this dominion ideology, this dominion theology where, you know, God's intention is that the world gets back to this theocracy or this, you know, these governments of of. of of divine purpose, like the monarchs, you know. Constitution wouldn't be considered a divine purpose. 
And there's a lot of thoughts. But the scripture is revealing the gospel. No matter what we look at in the Old Testament, it is revealing the gospel. The old ideas of this old covenant now didn't work, so God tried a new covenant. We've already taught in this congregation many times that that's a fallacy. There's one promise and one promise alone that is eternal in the context of God's purposes overall. And we call it the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption, the covenant of salvation that God created Adam and Eve in order to save a people, to create a people to, to save for himself, that he is glorified in it. That only he can do it. He can create a people for his own purpose. And he can make them good by becoming like them in creation in all goodness. No one is good but God, as we talked about week before last. And we need to realize that all of the stories and the promises and the dealings of God with His elect people who are a shadow of the true elect people, because not all of Israel are elect, and not all the Gentiles are elect. They're elect from every nation, from every tongue, and from every tribe in the world. And God will certainly calls them to know this and calls them to believe and rest in the finished work of Christ and the promises therein. But just as the covenants are a shadow, or as I like to say, the commercial of the one and only true, so is creation. So is the fall. So is everything that we see. And so is the image of God is a small commercial of the one and only true God. And the fullness of all that God is, seeing Him as He is, is revealed in the person of Christ to whom all other temporary expressions point. From the let there be light to the it is finished, to the Sabbath rest, to the true glorification of the saints, this is eternally decreed. This is what Paul and the other apostles express in the idea that God has caused us to be born again he has made us this way all of these small things point to the very one thing that is above all things who is Jesus Christ and that's what we're going to see today in the image of God it's not new thinking it's not new stories it's not a secondary tier it's not a due dispensation this is this is the gospel from start to finish And God has said it. God has decreed. God has spoken, and it shall be. It is. So God spoke concerning things that were not as if they were, and then His Word assured their existence. His Word brought them into being. He has proven His power, yet only those to whom He speaks will hear it and see it. He has promised that He will speak to His people and that they will hear Him and that they will know Him. So, beloved, I pray that we will hear Him this morning. So I want to focus in the context of this writing what God means when He says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And I want to do so without any interruption or interference from any historical ideas on this subject. So I don't even want to talk about those things. I don't want to talk about any of the reformers or any of the theologians of antiquity or any of the founding fathers, you know, the, the church fathers. I don't want to talk about these things because their ideas are not wholly exegetical. Their ideas are inferential. Maybe, maybe it's not yes. 
And the scripture teaches us, a little bit of a pretext here, yes or no. Let our yes be yes, let our no be no. So let us see what the scripture is teaching in that. That's why I said a little pretext there. (laughs) I'm twisting scripture to make my point. But maybe he's not in the equation. It's not maybe. This maybe is what God... No, what is God teaching us? Not maybe. There is no maybe in the teaching of the church. There should be no maybe. You know what that is? Philosophical ideas. It's the data we take, we think about it, and we expand upon it, and we talk about it, and we have safety in doing that, and there's nothing sinful or wrong or wicked in any of those things, except that when we begin to land our planes at the destruction of each other's joy or at the creation of a false revelation, which would be a creation of a false god. Without the separation of things in creation, as we've seen, it would not be perfect. It would just be chaos. But God put order in life, and God put order in creation because only He can make things good. Only He can make things right. Only He can make things perfect. And He does so with no No help from the creation. He doesn't need anything. He himself is sufficient. Last week we talked in the very closing of our sermon before I prayed about the nature of man. So in the idea that God created man in his own image, the image of God and in the likeness of God, I want us to be thinking as scripture uses that phrase throughout the Old Testament specifically. And when it talks about the idea of image and likeness, It is literally saying representative, statue, idol. I mean, if you've ever been to New York and you go to a gift shop, you can get a little keychain with Lady Liberty on it. A little teeny tiny statue with a keychain on it. You can hang it on your mirror, you can put it on your keys, or you can step on it at night on the way to the bathroom and scream. Whatever you want to do with it, it is not the Statue of Liberty. It looks like the Statue of Liberty. It represents the Statue of Liberty in its likeness. It is to scale whatever to the Statue of Liberty. And by all, for all intents and purposes, you can study that thing right there and you can see a whole lot of detail about the Statue of Liberty. But it is not the Statue of Liberty. That's an idol. That's an image bearer. That's the likeness. It's not the truth. So man is created in the likeness as an image bearer of God. Some people say, well, it's because he gave the breath of life to man. He gave the breath of life to fish. I just read it. He gave the breath of life to creepy things that crawl up on the ground. Crickets and snails. You see how... I mean, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have heard? Well, the image of God is that he gave the breath of life to man. And I remember hearing that as a child. Oh, yeah, I guess the other things just sort of started living. No, he gave the breath of life to them. Because he is the giver of life. He is the giver. He is the one who breathes into it. So everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And when God said these things, there were only two human beings standing there. Think about that. God created 
everything. He gave life to everything. So that's not the image of God, is it? He didn't say the image of God in the trees. Let us make trees in our own image. Let us make fish in our own image. Let us make cats in our own image. He said, let us make humanity. Them, male and female, in our image. Let us make them in our image and likeness. And then in that same breath, point being made, we see what God tells men to do. So there is this idea, and I won't get into them, but there is this idea that the image of God is seen in the doing of men. Possibly. But to what degree? There's the idea, we know, uh, the doctrine taught in Scripture that we would call depravity, that all men are sinful. And we'll get there in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 3. All men are sinful. And no man but Christ that has ever set foot on the earth, no man that has ever existed in the world, was actually righteous. Adam wasn't righteous. Adam was not sinful. But he wasn't righteous. He was innocent. There's a difference. <laughs> For righteousness cannot sin. And without God causing order and keeping things the way he has decreed them and purposed them, everything that is created will fall apart. But men and humanity, because they have been told that they bear the image of God has done what Lucifer has done and put it upon themselves to think highly of themselves. And I gave some, I gave, you know, three or four things to think about for today, last week. And one is that men think too highly of themselves and often they think more highly of themselves than they should. And sometimes, and I made that comment about the Puritans, sometimes higher still in their humility are panting after God's grace as if their piety can control the wrath of God. Look what we've made, God, not Cain. Look what we've done, God. Look what we've prayed, God. Look how we've stopped, God. Look what you've done in me, God. And the examples of those through the apostles show condemnation, not praise. So the image of God in man is not about man's intrinsic value or worth, though does all, do all things have value? Yes, all life is uh, purposeful. And because all life is purposeful, all life has value. But when God has called one out of darkness and one into destruction, it doesn't make the one who's called out of darkness in and of itself more valuable than the one that's been called to destruction. And there's a haughtiness in the world today amongst believers sometimes where they feel like we feel like we're better than unbelievers, but we're not. We are instruments of God's purposes. We are objects of mercy. It's not because we are special. It's because God is merciful. God is loving to his people. So we thank God for his grace, as Paul would tell the Ephesians, right? To the glory. We thank God to the praise of his glorious grace. What does glorious mean? The all-revealing, seeing, absolute, perfect vision of who God is by his mercy. We praise Him for that. God has created His people for His purpose, and it is not because we are something to behold. Before God grants faith to us to know Him and to see the gospel, we are just like everybody else in the world. 
with our own ways to righteousness, with our own ideas about how to please the Lord and appease the Lord, with our own philosophies on what God is or is there a God at all. And by nature are children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, has given us eternal life. By grace, you have been saved, beloved. And this is the creative, powerful work of the divine that we call God, who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes men think of their thinking too highly. Well, I know that I am but a worm, you know. You know those songs, those Puritan hymns. I remember a comedian sometime in the 80s, I don't even, he said, you know, the King James prayers and the King James hymns and all these things. And he made a spoof of a mighty fortress in that same uh, tune. I know that I am but a worm, so step over me, God, and watch me squirm, you know. You can't even hardly say that. And that's what we do. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I know what I am, so I'm just going to put that out there for the Lord, and now I'm more spiritual because I'm so sinful. And I know that I'm sinful. Do we know that we're sinful? Absolutely. All regenerate people know that they're sinful. But we're also righteous. How? Because we have been credited Christ's righteousness. So we have escaped the wrath of God, not because of what we are or who we are or what we've accomplished or what God is doing in us and how he's creating us to be. That's Phariseeism. That's self-righteousness. We are, we have escaped the wrath of God because that is what he's created for us in Christ Jesus to be his workmanship. And then the outcome of that is a whole lifetime of learning and growing and loving and living and serving and praising God through the love that we have for one another and the patience and the long-suffering and the unity and the reconciliation as God has reconciled us to himself through the blood of the cross so we reconcile to one another because of the blood of the cross. Because of the blood of the cross, not by the blood of the cross. But men think too highly of their own thinking. And sometimes we get so bogged down into the intellectual pursuits of these ideas that we actually take the majority of the sheep of Christ and we push them out the walls. And they stand in the corner going, what are you talking about? It's not important to me, I guess. I'll just go pick my nose. And I've certainly been guilty of that. Intentional or not, it's still sinful. And sometimes we find ourselves justified before God because of the state of mind we're in. That's not true, beloved. It's not true. Sometimes we think that we're justified before God because of the knowledge that we hold. That's not true either. Because the knowledge of The new life, the new birth, is that Christ is our righteousness. The knowledge is that Christ has settled the debt. The knowledge is that Christ has purchased his people by his own life. And so on and so forth. Sometimes men think their service and their works and their their obedience or their zeal counts before the jury of the divine. That's how I said it last week. 
But there is no trial. There is no jury. God has decreed guilty. There's no court hearing. There's no hearing. The verdict is done. The sentencing has been sent. We're waiting for the death row walk. For the green mile of eternity. But the saints will not see it. The elect will not know it. We await for glorification, not death. For to live as Christ, but to die is far better than living in this world. Then why would, she, why would we remain? Why should we want to remain for the sake of one another? For the sake of the name of our Lord together. That's why. The guilty verdict has been done. And no amount of well-meaning service and sacrifice will do. No, if we do not stand before our Father in His grace, we stand before our Father in His wrath. So for us, beloved, we are thankful that it's not up to us. We are thankful that the image of God is not what He is creating in us. We are thankful that we are not bound to some type of idea that we must rule as God rules and live as God lives and be the righteousness of God in our own merits or our own ability, or our flesh, but that Christ is the fullness of the image of God revealed in the flesh. And so therefore we are counted in Him. And that's the punchline of this teaching. Go to Psalm 8. We read some out of Romans last week very quickly. It sort of popped into my head at the end of things. But Psalm 8, I read this morning as we began... Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, have you ever sung that song, the old Hosanna or Maranatha group? You know, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's all we do. Why don't we sing the rest of it, you know? I used to love that song. I used to love that. It's a really good song for instruments. And some trumpets and all sorts of things. But that's what it comes from, Psalm 8. But listen to, what, listen to what David praises after he says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. I want you to think about this for a second. Above that which you have created, your glory is greater. We can look at the world. We can go to Romans 1. In fact, you probably put your finger there. You can go to Romans 1 and you can see that Paul says that God is known because we can see his divine power. Namely, his creative power, right? But the glory of God is revealed above what he's created. Above mere man, above mere animals, above mere cosmic infinite. Above it. And he says in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies... And infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And we don't have time to really get into that. But I mean, does that not echo what Paul affirms in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians? Who is the wise? Where are the intelligent? Where are those who know more than everybody else? They're not being used by God in this context. Jesus numerous times would say, in a way of speaking, unless you have the faith 
like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And a child trusts. A child expects. A child thinks, okay, I'm hungry. Mama's going to feed me. Not, oh no. Now some children, there are exceptions. It's a picture, folks. It's not a rule. It's a picture. There are a lot of children in the world who are hungry and who don't have parents. But in a general sense, children don't walk around scavenging for food in our culture. In our homes. Maybe they do, but they don't have to. When I look at your heavens, David says, he calls it the work of your fingers, verse 3. I see the moon and the stars which you have put in order, which you have set in place, which you have purposed. What is man? When I look at all this, he asks the question, what is man? That you're mindful of him. Have you ever heard this before? Yes, you've heard this before in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 and 2 gives us these quotations as Paul writes to these Hebrew believers and he's pointing to one particular thing and that thing is the Messiah who is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I look at all that you've made and what is man that you're mindful of him and here is the direct relationship to Jesus himself as he took this mantle, as he took this name, above any name on his earthly ministry, the Son of Man, that you should care for him. And then we know that David is speaking of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus the Christ, because we see this in chapter, in in verse 5, we see this in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels of heaven and crowned him with all that you are and with honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 3. You've put him over dominion and under his feet all things. All the beasts, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the fields, all the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea... O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So here is the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This is not new. We know that. We see it, don't we? We know what John wrote. And John used the creation account as the punch in the gut to get the people he was writing to to pay attention to the whole point of the revelation of God through Moses. In the beginning was the word. And the fullness of all that God is, is revealed in Christ Jesus in its completeness. He is the Son of Man. He is the great man. He is the righteousness of God. He is what the law shows us in His person, in His being. So the image of God is Jesus Christ perfectly. So now back to Genesis 1. This image of God. Back to idols, back to statues, back to representations. Jesus is not the representation. In Colossians chapter 1, what does the scripture teach us about Jesus? The scripture teaches us that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. And and I I mean uh, Hebrews 1. 
In Colossians chapter 1, we see up in verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has separated us. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of the sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the assembly. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You understand when we hear these language and and the apostles writing, specifically Paul here in Colossians and in Hebrews, he is showing that this this language is showing us Christ's preeminence. It's not talking about Christ's existence. It's not talking about Christ as a created thing. It's talking about Christ is the first of all things and the point of all things and the owner of all things and he has dominion over all things and he upholds all things. Now think about that for just a minute in the mystery of the incarnation. The incarnation is when God created a body for himself in the womb that he created in the person of Mary and he came into that as a human being laying down his divine attributes that he might be fully man, but yet at the same time, though separated in the context of his new created body, he was still God. (laughs) And that's as far as we can take it. That dumb look that we all just had. That's as far as we can take it. Or I had a dumb look, I don't know if y'all did or not. As far as we can tell, we can't, we can't come back and say, let's, let's, write some, let's write some books on that. The book's already been written on that. You realize that everything that we say that takes the context, takes away from the context of Scripture, is superfluous, right? So stick here. And God is in the business of revealing Himself through His Word in every generation, in every life, and in every person that belongs to him. The problem is the discipline of not being in the word and together around the word. Enough. Yes, this may motivate us to go, Billy Bob G, I'm going to go home tomorrow and I'm going to start reading the Bible. And it works until tomorrow. Because that's what life does. Some of us are so busy and burdened that it's just tough. So thank God we have the ability to gather together and take time out. But, beloved, we're only going to absorb that which we are eating. We're not only going to digest what we put in our mouth. We don't go to the buffet and take snapshots of it, put it on Instagram, and say, man, I'm full. No, we eat. And that's what we have to do with the Scripture. So here we see that Jesus is not an idol. Jesus is not a representation. Jesus is the essence of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the perfect man who is God. In Hebrews 1, God, in many times, many ways, God spoke to our, for, our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And here Paul says again, and upholds the universe. 
how? By the word of his power. So this is showing that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The very eternal God who became a man to fulfill the very image of God in humanity as the only Son of Man who is our righteousness. And then after making purifications for sin, after He cleansed His people forever, after He purchased them by His blood, after He appeased the wrath of the Father, after justice was satisfied, what does He do? He sits down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say? He's not an angel. He's God the Son. You are my Son and today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father and he will be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Where in the world can we worship something that is not God and not be in sin? Nowhere. And that's why I believe sometimes the idolatry of humanism is why Paul uses it in Romans 1. They do not give God thanks for who He is and what He's done, but instead they worship man. They worship us. They worship ourselves. They worship our accomplishments. They worship, I mean, nobody's, I mean, probably somebody are, but I mean, you don't hear people bowing down to statues of people as a whole in our culture, but we do bow down in our hearts and our affections to things that we have and things that we've done and things that we are and those relationships that we adore and we worship them instead of thanking God for who He is because in our humanity, we are going to love ourselves and thinking that we're something when the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is more excellent than all things. And that even the angels of the ether, (laughs) of the spiritual realm, are to worship the Son of God. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 1. If you haven't followed me there, sorry, I'm all over the place this morning, I'm sorry. And I've got other places I want to go, but I won't get there. God the Father says of the Son in verse 8, Your throne, listen to this, your throne, this is God the Father speaking of the Son of Man. Your throne, O God, he calls him God, is forever and ever. The scepter, the ruling power of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, is the symbol of who you are and your your glorious kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you. (laughs) God calls Jesus God, and then he says, Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, God says of the Son, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. You want to see what creation is all about? It is nothing but a, but a temporary dust mat to prepare the entrance of the fullness of Christ 
in the new creation with his people that only he can make righteous. Sit at my right hand until I make an enemy, make your enemies a footstool on your feet. We need to pay close attention, Paul says to these Hebrews. We need to pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Beloved, we need to pay close attention to what we're hearing so that we do not drift away. Jesus Christ is the fullness of the image of God. Jesus Christ is the one, the only one, who has ever had the image of God fully in reality. Humanity is just a little statue of that. Just like the temple. And when we get to Eden, I'm going to show you, beloved, the the descriptions of Eden map out the description of the temple. Where God meets man. It's inner, outer, and layers after layer after layer. It's the exact, it's the exact replica of the temple. So creation in and of itself is nothing but a shadow of redemption. Shadow of the power of God who causes us to be his own because he's purchased us and he's called us to be his own and decreed it before the world began. And the image that we bear is the shadow, just like the temple, just like everything else. Everything else just points to Christ. So the image of God in man is how we point to Christ in the waiting as a temporal thing for the true thing. Let me give you some understanding. Idols, as we've heard, are small representations of the true, the real thing. And so man reveals God's goodness that he exists because God made him and therefore man is good in that he is created for God's purposes, not because man is good in and of himself. Man can display God's sovereignty and rule because as we saw in Psalm 8, that Jesus Christ and in Colossians 1 and Colossians 3 and Hebrews 1, Jesus Christ, even in his humanity, even in his now glorified body, is the ruler of all things. He is the one who has put the image of God in its right place, its right perspective. So we are just shadows of that. We're shadows of that and that we have responsibility to maintain creation. We have responsibility to multiply and continue to see children born into our lineage. We have a responsibility to do as Jesus tells us to do, like in Colossians 3, over in verse uh, 8, where Paul tells the church of Colossae, but now you must put them all away. What is he talking about? All this idolatry, sexual impurity, passions of the flesh, evil desires, covetousness. He says it's idol worship. Why is it idol worship? Because we're worshiping man when we have covetousness. We see something man has and we wish we had it. We see something man was and we wish we were. It's idol worship. We're worshiping the idol. We're worshiping the statue. We're worshiping the shadow of Jesus Christ. The, this, this bodily form and this living in this life and this creative order is just a picture of who Christ is and one day will make all things right under his feet. You realize things that are under the feet of Christ don't crawl out from under there. <laughs> it's not a storage ottoman where things are just trying to get out. It's, it's a conquering position. It's done. It's finished. Some of you got the storage ottoman picture. 
And so Paul says, put away anger, put away wrath, put away malice, put away slander, put away obscenities from your mouth. Do not lie, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, who is Jesus Christ, the new Adam. The righteousness of God in the flesh. This is what we do. We're being renewed in our understanding of this knowledge, not in our transformative lives. Even if we never lie again, we're still liars. And that's not the point. God is not going to share. He's not going to create in a human being other than Jesus Christ the righteous a sense of righteousness in which someone could compare this person to Jesus in such a way that it might be hard to tell the difference. Like Joseph and Noah and Moses and Jonah, all types of Christ. But there's only one Christ. So creation in the human in the of humanity in the image of God is to show the set-apartness, ultimately. Let me show you how the image of God should be understood according to the context. God has, out of nothing, separated nothing to something. And out of that something, He separated the sky and the earth. And out of that, He separated the waters to create atmosphere and seas. And out of the seas, He separated the land from under the seas and to the seas. And then out of that, He created the platform, the place to where certain types of things could live. And only certain types of things could live. We don't have, other than penguins, but we don't have birds that live in the sea. And we don't have, you see, we don't have whales that live on the land. And he separated all these things. And he separated the days. And he separated even the ruling of the picture of the reflection of the sun at night with the moon, the celestial things. Or to display this perfect order and this promise of light never being overcome by darkness. And so now we understand what holiness really is. By this example of, first, of, of Genesis 1. Holiness is being set apart. Being separate. So God's holiness is that he's above all things. Christ is above all things. Even though he came lowly for a while. He took on flesh for a while. He was still above all things. That's holiness. That's separate. This is, this is what we need to understand about God and what we need to understand about the persons of God, our triune God, and we need to understand about the purposes of God and we need to understand about the people of God. That we, just as humanity, has been set apart and even though we have the first son Cain and the second son Abel, of which God hated one and loved the other, to show His electing purposes and grace and separating. It didn't matter who you're born into. God chooses you. God has created us for his own purpose. In separating that, then creating a people out of no people, Abram, to be the father of many nations, to become the elect who are Israel, that showing the separation. And then out of Israel, having the remnant that are separated for his purposes. But ultimately, it is Christ, the God-man, who is separated from glory, coming to the world that he created to show his good news redemption and his power in redemption to separate a people for himself by dying in their place and giving them 
and to their account his righteousness, his goodness, the essence of his divine glory that we one day now will share with him. So God is set apart from all creation and man is set apart from all creation. And then out of man, the elect are set apart from all humanity to be joined with the one who is above, who is holy, who is above, who is holy, above, separate, all things, and share in his glory. And what we do when we share in the glory of Christ is that he recreates us with a whole new world. He will roll this world up. He's not going to make it better. He's not going to fix it. It's not a renovation project. It is by the word of his power. Let there be no more, and it shall not be any more. Now let there be the new, and the new shall be, and we shall be made new forever and he will forever get the glory for it and forever get the praise for it and how do we share in the glory of Christ there's a lot of ways that we see that but ultimately we rest as God sat down finished the work of creation that has no end that day has no end this is the promise of the rest as Jesus finished the work of redemption and now said it is finished the light that came into the world has finished the work of revealing the goodness of God for his people and the purposes of all that exists in Christ Jesus that's why it says it was made for him and to him and through him all things were made by him and for him and to him and through him I'm being redundant. But we share in that glory when we share in that rest. And our faith today rests in part, right? Yeah, we can see the true. It has come. We can see the pages of Scripture. But like 1 Peter says, sometimes we are in the midst of life in such a damning way. In such a disturbing way, in such a disastrous way, that it's hard to find the joy of Christ. But we look that to that which is unseen. So Christ even today is unseen except by the revelation of Scripture. The image of God in humanity is unseen because Christ isn't here. So we look to the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, we together begin to understand what this day of rest is all about. And we long for that day when Christ sits down with us forever and we share in the rest, having been separated from this world and its fallenness for the rest of eternity. We will be resting with Christ, beholding what He has made as we are a part of what He has made and having all unity with Him because of His glorious grace. So, the image of God is not about in man. It's not about our work and all these different things. It's about our rest, waiting for the one who truly bears the image of God in fullness, knowing the one who truly bears the image of God. Now, can we parse out some interesting ideas and say, you know, we got, I, I want to talk about work and all that kind of stuff as the Lord grants me understanding. But, beloved, None of the things that we do as human beings will suffice because only what God does in creation will suffice. God's gospel is that he will make his people righteous. And he has done so in Christ and that Jesus Christ is the final man. He is the new Adam, the second Adam, the perfect, perfect righteousness. He is the image of God in flesh. 
And so when we worship our work and we worship ourselves and when we long in sinfulness, we're doing what the flesh does. We're worshiping the statue, not the truth. But beloved, when we worship Christ, we worship the one true God. Because he has told us and the angels of glory to worship him. For he is worthy. He is worthy. And he has saved us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that we could talk about relating to this. And Lord, your word is sufficient. (laughs) Father, save us from our own research. And help us to see this simple expression of waiting upon the true righteousness who is Jesus Christ. Of understanding that even though we are little tiny statues of your glory, it is only because Christ came in the image of a sinner. But he sinned not. And his death counted as a substitute for the forgiveness of sins for all of those whom you have loved eternally. And His death satisfied holy justice and righteousness and wrath. And you have poured out your hate and wrath and vengeance upon the very one you love, the Son of Man, the Son of God, so that you would be just and forgiving your elect people their sins. Father, His resurrection from the dead, His glorification in His flesh is proof of the promise. Just as the stars in the sky are proof of the promise of the election of Your glory to Abraham and the power of, and the the permanence of Your power to the world at large. Father, You have shown us the beauty of the simple gospel and revealed to us specifically who you really are in Christ, that we may see you face to face by looking at Jesus and that when we do see him face to face in our flesh, we shall be made to be like him in all glory to share that which is not ours to claim but yours to give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together, beloved.